The Word of God from Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, going through verse 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. There came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored Him to come to His house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around Him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The Word of God. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you that You are the God who raises dead beings to life. That You take our inanimate hearts, that You take our spiritual destruction, and You breathe new life through Your Son, Christ Jesus. And so we ask, Father, as we look at this passage, that we would see You as the life-giving Father that we would see Your Son as the one who has purchased that life on our behalf, that we would see Your Spirit, the one who applies that life to us. We ask that You would be glorified as we look together at Your Word this morning. We ask that we would be sanctified, that Your church would be built up in the image of Christ Jesus, our Savior. We ask all of this. Amen. Well, many of you uh, have your own stories in your own particular lives that you look back on, I'm sure, that you look back on and you say, 
there is the evidence of God's marvelous providence in our lives. The goodness of God being reflected in a historical faithfulness to you. Our family has our own story, and I'll, I'll summarize it to you. Our, our daughter was born November 8, 2009. She was born three months before her due date. She was a two-pound baby, and uh, together with her birth, my wife had all these complications. The day after being born, uh, my wife had uh, internal bleeding. She had four pulmonary embolisms in her lungs, blood clots. She had a bunch of follow-up surgeries after giving birth to Naomi, and during one of those surgeries, the radiologist who was doing the surgery thought it wise to put an IVC filter, an intravenous filter, in her vena cava, the main artery from her heart to her lower extremities. The titanium filter was put in place to prevent these blood clots from moving to her heart and ultimately killing her. And so after all these surgeries were finished, we kind of got to this point where we're at this, this mountaintop experience. Everything was going well. Six months later, Kate was to return to the doctors to have this filter removed from her vena cava. And so six months later, we return. And after this five-hour surgery, the, the surgeon comes out kind of sheepishly, and he says, we can't take the filter out. It's stuck. He pulls us aside, and he shows us these images of this titanium filter that had turned sideways in the vena cava uh, and had lodged itself through both walls of the main artery of her body. And he said, listen, right now this titanium filter is not touching any major organs, but I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what is going to happen one year, two years, five years. 10 years from now. There's no long-term studies on these things. And so he kind of bid us farewell and says, I wish you luck. I don't know what to tell you, but we can't help you anymore. And so we go then to this kind of valley, this low point. We're wrestling with frustration and, and uh, maybe even some depression and wondering what's next. Months after this, a, a family member calls us and says, hey, listen, I heard about this doctor, the surgeon at Stanford University who's doing this this technology, pioneering this technology where he removes embedded IVC filters. Maybe you should check it out. So we got into contact with Stanford University. Eventually, we ended up going out there at Stanford University. They did the surgery. It took four hours, but they were able to remove the IVC filter. And so now we're back up at this mountaintop experience. We return home. A few weeks later, we find out the cost of the medical procedure, and then we're back in the valley again. A few weeks after that, we get a call from Stanford. They had made some uh, errors on their computing of the medical bills, and it turns out that we owed hundreds of thousands of dollars less money to Stanford, which was in itself another mountaintop experience for us. A few months after that, the realization that we wouldn't be able to have any more kids began to set in. We began to wonder, as a family who really wanted to have lots of children, what does that mean for us? A few months after that, we began praying about adoption. We ended up at this dinner party at my parents' house, and we said, okay, the first step to adoption is to let the people know that you know and, and love, the ones you have relationships with, to let them know that you're thinking about adoption. And so we said it at this dinner party. Hey, guys, we're thinking about adoption. We're wondering if you could pray for us. We don't know what that means, but if you would pray for us, that would be great. Three weeks after that, we're, we're laying in bed on a Saturday morning, and we got a phone call. The voice on the other end said, listen, you don't know me. I know somebody who knows somebody who knows you, but I wonder if you would adopt my child, my son. That's ultimately how we ended up adopting our son, Charlie. That whole story, right, 16 months worth of chaos, 
is the way that most of us look at events in our lives, and at some point we look back and we say, that's what God was doing. That's where God was at work. The, the chaos, the unorderedness, the seemingly random events of our life, the ones where we have mountaintops and valleys, the ups and the downs, that is something of what God was doing. Now, that's very much what happens in the passage this morning. If you're following along, you realize that just in the course of a few hours, there are mountaintops and there are valleys in this story. Jairus sees Jesus set foot on the shore again, and Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus, pleading with him to help heal his daughter. Then the crowd presses in, and like an ambulance stuck in traffic, Jairus is probably thinking, come on, Jesus, let's go. Then Jesus pauses, and he has this seemingly insignificant conversation. And I imagine Jairus thinking, what are we waiting for? Why are you talking to this woman? And as the conversation is going on, people come from Jairus' home, and they say, stop troubling the teacher. Your daughter's dead. It's over. Jairus hits another low moment. But then Jesus, in a miraculous way, comes to Jairus' house and he raises his daughter from the dead. These are the ups and the downs, the seemingly chaotic situations which work together in the wonderful providence of our God to show us His glory and His working for our good. This is what we're going to see in the passage this morning. And I only have really three brief points for you concerning this passage. The first one is very simple. As we look at this text, I think this passage reveals to us that suffering is a universal language. Suffering is a universal language. If you've ever been involved with any cross-cultural missions work or cross-cultural studies, you realize that a lot of people use this language. They talk about the universal languages. I've heard people say sports is the universal language, okay? We all like to kick soccer balls. It's just simple. I've heard other people say that music is the universal language. It must not be very universal because it's not a language I speak, all right? Uh, but many people use music. We have an ethnomusicologist here in our congregation, okay? Many people use music to communicate across cultural bounds. This morning, as we look at this passage, I, I want you to see that even more universal than music or sports is the language of suffering. The language of suffering. Everyone we come into contact with is a sufferer. They have suffered, they are suffering, or they will suffer. It is truly one of the most universal languages. Think about this passage, okay? There's two main characters in, in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. There's, of course, Jesus and the disciples. They're always there. But we've got two other main characters. We've got Jairus, and we've got this woman. Consider Jairus for a second. The passage says that he was the leader of the synagogue. Now, let me tell you what that means. Jairus being the leader of the synagogue would have been the most influential person in the local synagogue here in Capernaum. Okay? Uh, Jairus would have been responsible for choosing the people who would preach and teach in the synagogue. He would be responsible for allowing certain people to pray or to take part in the worship in the synagogue. He would have been in constant dialogue with the priest in the temple in Jerusalem. One commentator noted that Jairus here in Capernaum would have been one of the five most influential people in all of the city. 
as such, he would have had affluence. He would have been notorious, well-known within the city. He would have uh, had a large family. We see that. He has a daughter here, a large household. Okay? Uh, he would have been, by all accounts, well-to-do, honored within the society. Now, you, you compare that for a second. You compare that to the woman. She's the exact opposite. All right? The, the passage tells us that she had this discharge of blood for 12 years. If you go back and you rewind, you go back and look at the Levitical law, you would know that having this chronic illness, it would have prevented her from many things. It would have prevented her from being married. That's a big one. Okay? It would have prevented her from being married because uh, she could not be with a man. That was part of the Levitical law. That would have prevented her from having her own children, from having her own family and household. She would have been prevented from entering the temple or the synagogue. That was just a big no-no. She wouldn't have been allowed to be in crowds of people. Okay, even what she does here this morning, coming to see Jesus in this crowd of people, that was not allowed because she would have made them unclean by her uncleanness. Okay? In comparison to Jairus, she is everything that he is not. She's obscure. She's ostracized. She's not well spoken of. She wouldn't have been well known. And the way that the gospel writers communicate this, it's so subtle, but in every gospel that records this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them tell us her name. She is the woman. She's the woman. She's a representative picture, a picture of all those who would be ostracized, all those who were not well known. And this morning, what I hope you see about these two characters is that um, as different as they are, everything about them being polar opposites, as different as they are, they have at least one thing in common. They are both sufferers. They're both suffering. Jairus his daughter is about to die. The woman suffering with this chronic illness. Both of them speaks a common language of suffering. Both of them understands it. Suffering touches all parts of the world, all of humanity, without regard to race or ethnicity or poverty level or affluence or country or language. Suffering affects everyone. We see that in the passage this morning. As we think about that, I want to encourage you. I believe this is why Jesus' compassion is always appropriate. See, one of the wonderful things about Jesus is that everyone who He interacts with, He speaks to them as someone who is suffering. He recognizes, as He speaks with the woman at the well, that she's a sufferer. He recognizes as He heals those who are blind or sick, who are deaf, that they are sufferers. He recognizes, even as He engages with people like the Pharisees, that they themselves are suffering. And He speaks with compassion that is always appropriate for engaging people who are suffering. Now here's how I want to encourage you then this morning regarding this first point. You see, when we think about suffering, there's usually two dispositions that are prominent in the church. Either we want to avoid those who are suffering, and that's common. Okay, suffering is messy. Uh, suffering is complicated. Suffering tends to just get us in a bad mood. Whatever the case may be, we either want to avoid people who are suffering or we think, you know what, I really want to go to those places in the world where those suffering people are. 
I, I've got to find a third world country where people are really suffering, okay? And we go to the other extreme. Now, the, the thing I think this passage reveals to us is that we don't have to go somewhere to find suffering people. We just have to look around to identify the people who are suffering around us because they are all around us. The people that we engage with in our neighborhood, in our communities, within our church, where we work. As we look at the people around us, do we recognize that they have suffered, they are suffering, or they will suffer? Maybe all three. I've been encouraged and challenged in my own right as I've engaged with many of you, many of you who I didn't know at first, but I began to know you as we had conversations to hear some of the suffering that you have experienced, the suffering that has shaped you, the suffering that has molded you. I want to encourage you to consider that those around you that you come into contact with, they are sufferers. We ought to meet them with the compassion that the Lord Jesus Christ has for those who are suffering. Yet that is good news because as we find in the Gospels, suffering is kind of the soil in which the Gospel is sown. One commentator said despair is commonly the prelude or the prelude to grace. Despair is commonly the prelude to grace. So suffering is a universal language. The second thing, I've noted it on your handout, is that the value of faith is measured not by the activity or the intensity of our faith, but by the object of our faith. The value of faith is measured not by the activity or the intensity of our faith, but it is measured by the object of our faith. I don't know if you noticed, but these two characters in the passage this morning, they have what I've taken to calling a baby faith, okay? And I have to be careful when I say that because it sounds a lot like a baby face, but it's baby faith. They have baby faith. Uh, a childlike faith, an infant faith, okay? They have the very beginnings of faith. It's a baby faith. And if you noticed it, you see it in two different ways for these characters. First of all, Jairus. Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus. But you know what? We have to note here, Jesus has been to the synagogue in Capernaum uh, many times before this, okay? Jesus has been to this very synagogue uh, many times before this. Uh, Luke notes at least two other times. Matthew notes three other times that Jesus has been to this very synagogue. And I tell you, when Jesus has been at work in this synagogue, the relationship between him and the leaders of the synagogue has not been very good. There's been lots of conflict between him and the leaders of this synagogue, okay? And what it tells me as we look at Jairus, you see Jairus here, he's not coming to Jesus and saying, listen, Jesus, I've been following you a long way. I really do believe you're the Messiah, I have now converted to being a Christ follower. Or I have heard your teaching and I'm very convinced of everything you said. Or, you know what? Just seeing you today, Jesus, I have been convicted of my sin. Nothing of that is said. Understanding that Jairus was very likely in conflict with Jesus all along the way, seeing him in the, now here falling at the feet of Jesus, it seems to communicate to you and I that Jairus is in a way falling at the feet of Jesus, saying, listen, I've got nothing else, okay? I'm at the end of my rope. There is nowhere else for me to turn, and as a matter of fact, I just maybe am going to try out trusting in Jesus, okay? It's a, it's a baby faith. It's the beginnings of faith. The woman is the same way. 
You, you read about the woman, and what do you know about her? You don't know very much, but verse 43 says that the woman had spent all of her savings on physicians. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So you get the picture of a woman who is also at her wit's end. We don't know much about her, but we know that she had given everything she had to trying to be healed. Matthew phrases it slightly different. Matthew says that she had spent all of herself on trying to find physicians who might heal her. She had spent all of herself. You know what's interesting? The more you read about the woman, the more you realize how hard her life must have been. The, the Talmud, which is a rabbinical writing, the rabbi's writing, extra biblical, but they're writing to give good advice to the people of Israel. The Talmud has like 21 different prescriptions for a woman who is suffering with this illness, okay? And the, uh, some of them are, are maybe interesting. Some of them are just completely absurd. And at the end of that writing of the Talmud, here's what it says. It says, if all else fails for this woman, here's what you ought to do for her. Give her a glass of wine. Position her at a point where two roads intersect. Have her hold the glass of wine, sneak up behind her, and scare her. And then say, arise from thy flux. Arise from thy flux. I don't even know what that means. But that sort of solution are the absurd things that this woman was likely dealing with. Going through these absolutely insane suggestions for being healed, and after one after the other, finding a no respite, no healing, no restitution, now she comes to Jesus. And she comes up in this crowd where she's not supposed to be. And she hopes just for a moment that he might heal her. See, both of these characters in this story, they demonstrate this childlike faith. They demonstrate this childlike faith. And you know what that looks like, okay? Childlike faith, it appears at least initially to be selfish, right? Motivated by some desire for Jesus to do something, to save you, to heal you, to take care of you, to provide for you. Childlike faith is not terribly well informed. It's not without its own doubts. It's simple in its expression. It's candid in its expectation. These two people have baby faith. The greatest expression of this in this passage is not so much in what the two people say, it's really in what they do, okay? Think about this. If you've ever had children, if you've ever had children, uh, you might know that this is how children ask for things, okay? They come up to you and they say, Daddy, 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 Mommy, 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 okay? I, I want this thing. I want this, okay? And if you're not listening, if you're not doing, what do they begin to do? They begin to tug on your shirt, Daddy, Daddy. I want your attention. This is the thing I want, okay? And then what happens if you tell them, no, 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 no. You're not getting that thing. What do they do? They fall on the floor. Maybe they begin to roll around. They say, but you don't love me. Why can't I have this? I really want it. Don't you see how much I need it? Okay, that's what children do. If you've had children, you know that. Even if you haven't had children, you probably witness it. You watch around, you see it, okay? If you, if you pay attention 
to what these two people do. That's exactly what they're doing in this passage. The woman comes up to Jesus and she's tugging on his garment. Okay? It, it seems as if she maybe expected him to, to heal him, but maybe she's just trying to get his attention. Jesus, 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 please just see me for one moment, right? And then what does Jairus do? He, he falls on the, the ground at Jesus' feet. Mark says he falls prostrate. He spreads himself out. And if you've ever seen, again, a child do this, is exactly what Jairus is doing. Jesus, please, I need this. Won't you hear me? Won't you work? I can conceive of nothing else in the world that I want more. I need you, Jesus, to do something. The actual physical expression that they make with their bodies communicates to us this childlike faith. Tugging on the shirt of Jesus falling at the feet of Jesus, pleading, crying, weeping, pouring their hearts out that Jesus would just work and act. So the thing I hope to encourage you with this morning, the second thing is, is very simple. The value of faith, the value of our faith is not measured by the activity or the intensity of our faith. That is to say, it's not measured by how long you've been a Christian, or what you understand about theology, or what you understand about the nature of your sin, the measure of our faith is in the object of our faith. That is Christ Jesus. Measure of our faith is in the object of our faith. I think that Presbyterians can be challenged in at least two different fronts with this truth, okay? We can be challenged with our children, and we can be challenged with those who have special needs. All right, in both instances, maybe we have failed. Or at the very least, we have been challenged. You see, Presbyterians are very convinced about the integrity of Scripture. We hold that to be true. We hold that to be high and valuable. And so when we talk about testimonies of faith, we're always very cautious about what a testimony of faith looks like. With our children, okay, when they begin to express faith, the, the common Presbyterian response is, I don't know. I'm not sure. Do you really understand your sin? I mean, do you really get it? Do you know how bad it is, how rebellious you are? Do you understand the sovereignty of God? Have you memorized the catechism questions? Do you really? When our children come to us, like, yeah, I've got faith in Jesus. I trust him to do what I can't do for myself. Beyond that, I don't know how to articulate it. Okay, our common response is to push them and to challenge them more. But we ought to be encouraged. Jesus says, as he sees the children, this is faith. Faith like a child is what I exhort you to. He doesn't say faith like a child is something that you ought to look down on, that you ought to be skeptical about. He says faith like a child is that which you ought to be exhorted to yourselves. I think in the same way, we've often failed with those who have special needs. I don't know if you've ever been part of this, but there are many in Presbyterian circles who would say to people who have special needs, if you can't fully articulate your faith, then you don't have faith. See how terrible that is? Many people who have been affected by disabilities, they articulate their faith with the raising of their hand, with the making of sounds, with the nodding of their head, with the moving of their body with the ways that they affirm their faith in Jesus. And as we look at this passage here, you know what? That is faith in Christ. 
It's evident from this passage because Jairus and the woman, theirs is not a very comprehensive faith, but it is faith in Christ. And so Jesus works for these two who have faith. The value of faith is measured not by the activity or the intensity of our faith, but by the object of our faith. Finally, I'd like to point out here how Jesus orders all things for His glory and for our good. I want to focus finally here just on Jairus, okay? Just on Jairus. Uh, we've talked about the woman, but I just want to take a second and focus on Jairus. Can you imagine the roller coaster? I mentioned earlier this up and down, but can you imagine the roller coaster for Jairus? Okay, Jairus, his daughter is desperately ill. And as a man who likely had, had some uh, antagonistic relationships with Jesus, he sees Jesus on the shore, and this is his last hope. He shows up, falls at his feet. I don't know what he thought Jesus would did. Maybe he thought Jesus would be like, the heck with you? I know who you are. I don't want anything to do with you. But he falls at his feet nonetheless, and Jesus is inclined to go help him. And so Jesus begins to make his way towards Jairus' home. And so that's kind of the, the up of the roller coaster. But then the crowd begins to hinder Jesus, and they're pressing in upon him. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 somebody just touched me. And Peter's like, are you serious, Jesus? Everybody's touching you. And Jesus, no, no, a particular person touched me. And power went out from me, and they were healed. And Jairus now is going down the roller coaster, okay? Like, I don't know if I've communicated to you, Jesus, but this is kind of urgent. And Jesus pauses, and he interacts with this woman. Again, seemingly insignificant conversation. And then Jairus is like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to go to the house. It's great. And as they begin to make their way there, uh, on the horizon appears a person from the house of Jairus. And I imagine that as Jairus saw that person, his heart probably sunk. Because he knew they weren't coming to bring good news. And if you look at verse 49, I've, I've read this passage I would have to imagine hundreds of times, okay? In various different versions of Scripture. And every time I read it, verse 49 hits me over and over again as a super powerful demonstration of the death and sickness of sin, the destruction of this world, and in one foul swoop, the resurrection, redemption, and hope of the gospel. Listen to what verse 49 says. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. See, as we read that passage, it's apparent that Jairus believed Jesus. Because right after that, Jesus, Jairus, his wife, two of the disciples, they make their way into the home. Jesus comes up to the bedside of this girl who had died. And Jesus says, listen, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And the people, they laugh. I always love it when the people laugh at Jesus, okay? Because you know he's about to do something that they least expect. And they kind of, I can't imagine them actually 
laughing out loud because this is a very sad moment. So I think that more so they were like, there's no way, Jesus. Jesus walks up to the bed of the girl, and the passage here says that Jesus said, child, arise. But if you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible, every once in a while I'll say, I prefer the Jesus Storybook Bible here, okay? The Jesus Storybook Bible in, in, in that, this passage, the writer translates this line as that Jesus said to the girl, honey, wake up. It's very similar to what he said uh, to the woman. He calls her daughter. Only time Jesus ever calls anybody daughter. Terms of endearment. Terms of affection. Okay? Jesus says to the girl, child, arise and her spirit comes back into her, and she wakes up. And Jesus reaches down into death, and he gives life to this young girl. What I want to encourage you with this morning as we consider this passage is that all of this seeming chaos and unpredictability and events that seem unrelated, and the ups and the downs of the roller coaster ride that Jairus is experiencing is all being worked by the Lord Jesus Christ together for the glory of God and for the good of his people, namely here for Jairus, for his family, and for the people who are watching. You see, Jairus came to Jesus with an uninformed, wishful baby faith that Jesus could heal his daughter from her sickness. It was a microscopic faith. It was a little faith. It was one that you could barely see, but it was there, and the object of his faith was Jesus. But you see, in this story, that belief was stretched and challenged, enlightened, and elevated through Jesus' exchange with the woman. But now Christ has challenged Jairus not merely to believe him for the daughter's healing, but now to believe him for his daughter's resurrection from the dead. See, the chaos of this story was well designed. It was well planned to challenge and strengthen the faith of this new believer. It was for the glory of God. It was for the good of Jairus. Here's how I want to encourage you this morning. Very simple, okay? All of you are at some point in the roller coaster of verse 49 in all of your lives. Some of you are at the point where you've gone through the valley and you have seen the, the hope and the goodness of God. He has demonstrated that in your life. You've been blessed by His work in and among you. And now you reflect on his goodness to you, like I shared with you about our story this morning. But others of you are at a different point in this passage. Some of you are at the point of despair, like Jairus was when he fell at the feet of Jesus, pleading with him to heal his daughter, and you're wondering, how are we going to move forward? What hope is there for us in this situation? Others of you are at the point where you've gone through the valley and you thought you were coming back up onto the mountain and then you realize like Jairus, as the crowd stops Jesus and he finds out that his daughter is dead, that you're back in a deeper valley than you were before. Some of you are at that point where you're wondering, is there ever going to be a resolution? Is there ever any hope for us? My encouragement to you this morning is this. 
this passage is a representation or a depiction of what is true for all those who have faith in Christ, whether in this world or the next. That wherever you're at, in the valley, that the reality of the gospel is that there is hope, that there is restitution of all wrongs, that there is a vindication through the Lord Jesus Christ, that all who believe in Him will be fully restored. That the trials and the challenges that you're facing now, even those have a good ending in Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning as you consider this passage, the hope of the resurrection that is offered as Jesus raises this, this girl to new life. That hope of the resurrection is the hope for every believer in Jesus Christ. For the restitution and the restoration and the salvation, and the fullness, and the making whole, that is what is offered to you in the gospel. And so I leave you with these words, the same words that Jesus offered to Jairus, now the words that I leave you with. Do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe. And it all will be well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you that you are our God. Lord, I pray this morning for those in our congregation who are experiencing the valleys, who are living in the shadows, who are going through trials and challenges, from the smallest to the greatest, from the bad days to the life-threatening illnesses, from the depression and the anxiety, to the loss of loved ones. Lord, I pray that you would give us hope knowing that through and in Christ Jesus, our Lord, every low valley will be made high. Every sickness, trial, challenge that we face will be vindicated and made right. Every loss we experience will be satisfied. We thank you that in this world we often get glimpses of that full future restoration. So Lord, I pray for those whose faith is being challenged and tried that you would give them glimpses of hope. I pray for us, for each of us, that we would be able to see your hand, your providential good hand at work in all of the seemingly chaotic events of our lives, that we would in turn glorify you, that our faith would be strengthened and encouraged. Lord God, we even pray for those in our congregation who we know right now are going through these valleys. I, I pray this morning for Ruth Carner. I know she's in the hospital this morning. I pray, Lord, that this aneurysm would be easily dealt with by the doctors. I pray that the bleeding in her brain would stop. I pray that you would heal her and that you would use even these trials, Lord, for the strengthening of her faith, her family's faith, our congregation's faith, and for your glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.